This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we take a look at the China aviation market. That aviation boom in China, the aircraft that will support that market, and the impact on the global aviation industry. In the news, the V-22 Osprey is grounded worldwide. A judge wants more concessions from JetBlue as they seek to acquire Spirit. Producing sustainable aviation fuel through CO2 direct air capture technology. And an airport's expansion plans come under fire on environmental grounds. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 778 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Sorry I've missed on and off the last couple of weeks, but I'm still fighting this cold. Um, Don't know what the heck to do about it, but it refuses to leave. Kind of like your bad relatives at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, been an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening. And uh, David, for whatever it's worth, I, I just now got past a cold that was the worst I've had in years, and it lasted about two weeks so I don't know how far into it you are, but I was doing the <coughs> uh, for. Oh, I, the listeners probably don't really want to hear that, do they? No, it was better when you used to do the weather. But don't, don't. That's okay. You don't have to do that. Okay, you can just chop that out if you want. I mean, nobody wants to listen to me pretend to cough anyway. So no, hey, listeners, glad to be here and looking forward to chatting with Vance. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Hey, great to be here. And, you know, this week I'm going to be making my mom's recipe for homemade minestrone soup. And, David, if I were nearby, I would drop some off to you because our doctor, who my mom used to bring it to all the time, who's a friend of the family, said it was perfect for upper respiratory stuff. So I wish I were nearby. It would cure you. Uh, Mother knows best. All right. Well, our guest this episode is Vance Hilderman. He's the CEO of A-Fusion That's a safety certification consultancy for the aviation industry. Now, Vance is the founder, CEO, and CTO of several safety-critical companies. He's a world-renowned safety-critical expert, a speaker, trainer, and author. And Vance is one of those aviation authorities that can kind of speak to almost anything. And we're going to talk to him this episode about the China aviation market. So, Vance, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Well, Max and Rob and David and Micah, thank you so much for having me. It's like the roundtable here. And, you know, speaking of roundtables, folks uh, like yourself, I like to gamble, but not when I'm flying. I'm a pilot also, but my game is poker. And if you're ever sitting around a poker table and you don't know who the smartest one is, well, it's not you. And right now, it's not me with Rob, Max, David, and Micah here. I'm I'm not playing poker with these gentlemen, but we're going to have a very interesting time speaking about China, one of the places I've been to at least a hundred times. So looking forward to this. 
it's a really fascinating market in a lot of ways, and certainly in the aviation context. All right, but before we do that, we're going to start with some of the aviation news from the past week. Is everybody ready? Ready from the Midwest. Ready from Delaware. Mainly ready. Our first story comes from AIN Online. This is Osprey Crash Triggers Worldwide Grounding. Well, uh, U.S. Air Force CV-22B Osprey Tilt Rotor crashed offshore near Yakushima, Japan. That was November 29th, just recently. It was during a training mission. The eight service members who were aboard uh, were killed in this crash. Now, the U.S. Air Force's Special Operations Command ordered an operational stand-down of the CV-22 fleet, and uh, all the other V-22 operators have done the same. So, uh, David, can you tell us a little bit about what a operational stand-down means in this context? It means literally you stop flying everything, um, unfortunately. But the preliminary information is it's a materials issue, so cracks or something along those lines. So basically what you do is you stand the fleet down and you ground everything and you go over each aircraft inch by inch um, to see if there's any trends on these issues. We've done this with not just V-22s, but all sorts of multiple aircrafts, C-130s over the years, F-15s. I mean, um, there tends to be trends, you know, with especially with um, composite materials. So aircraft develop cracks or um, fatigue issues where they weren't planned on engineering, but you start seeing it on multiple aircraft or screws get sheared or such. So you stand everything down and you go over everything with a fine-tooth comb to prevent further issues. The Special Operations Command said that the preliminary investigation information indicates a potential materiel failure that that caused the mishap. I've never seen anything described as a potential materiel failure. I mean, materiel normally refers to supplies and equipment, uh, or in the case of military, uh, weapons. You'd also maybe consider that to be materiel. So I don't know how to parse this. Of course, it is just the preliminary investigation. I think it's a, I think it's a structural fatigue issue. Um, I haven't seen anything else issued about this, but um, I think basically it's a structural fatigue issue that um, they're gonna they're probably finding cracks somewhere in the fuselage or in the wing or um, or in the control surfaces. Something that would cause a, a real pause to to want to stop and look at every look at every inch of every aircraft. You know, the Osprey had uh, some issues with clutches for quite some time, uh, and they were grounded for a little bit, or at least the Air Force and I believe the Navy, definitely the Air Force grounded theirs for a while, where the Marines found a way to deal with that clutch issue. And I'm wondering if this is separate from that, or if it's a material in the clutch that's causing problems that they're working with. The Marines have sort of had a workaround for it, but uh, it could be uh, it could be part of the same thing, because they're being very tight-lipped about it at this point. Now, of course, we know that there have been a number of incidents with the, the V-22, number of accidents, uh, even within the last two years. In uh, March of 2022, there was an MV-22B crashed in Norway that killed four Marines. In June 2022, there was an, another MV-22B that crashed in California, killing 
oh, five Marines aboard. And then just this past August, a few months ago, another MV-22B crashed in Australia, killing three of the 23 Marines that were aboard. Now, our uh, friends from down under, Stephen Grant, had a connection. They had met the crew at the Pacific Air Show Gold Coast's VIP event. And in fact, Grant had been talking with one of them about coming on the show. Um, and then shortly thereafter, there was this uh, this crash. So it has kind of a interesting history, certainly a number of crashes. I, I don't know if how the rate compares to other military aircraft or other rotor craft or anything like that, but there have been quite a few of these crashes. There, there are two things, actually, I'd, I'd like to say about that. One is this says a lot about journalism today, this article does, because when you read the headline, it says Osprey crash triggers worldwide grounding. And the subheadline on this AIN article says tilt rotor crashes in the last two years have killed 20. Now, that's a horrible number of people to lose. And it makes you think that the Osprey is terribly unsafe. But then when you go down to the last paragraph of this article, it says this Osprey crash is one of four over two years. So I'm really wondering, based on what you said, Max, in comparison, how many F-35s have we lost in two years? How many F-A-18s have we lost in two years? What's the number? Previously, to this crash anyway, the Osprey numbers in terms of overall percentage was lower than the rest of the fleet. So it's the Osprey has a reputation, and that's something that I talked about uh, with um, when I when I interviewed um, I can't remember the Lieutenant Hardinger from uh, VMT VMMT two hundred four a couple of years ago, and, and she pointed that out as well. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to say is um, Armando Carrion from the Plain Talking UK podcast actually knew this crew and flew with this crew. Uh, from this aircraft and, uh, uh, he's not able to get any information either, uh, even from the people that he knows in terms of what went on or what's going on. So it says a lot about this particular one. Well, there have been a number of accidents. Again, you made an interesting point, Micah. I, I don't know. I don't follow the military aviation like, like uh, some of you guys do, but, uh, I, I was trying to imagine if this was, Let's say uh, Boeing or or even Embraer or uh, De Havilland or something, and it says that uh, sixteen of the V twenty twos were uh, damaged in accidents. Uh, you know, during the uh, testing period. I'm sorry, four crashed, killing a total of thirty people during the testing between ninety one and two thousand. And once the V twenty two became operational in two thousand and seven, there were 12 more crashes that killed another 33 people. Uh, now, of course, again, trying to make that apples and oranges comparison, I mean, if if the uh, if a similar Boeing or, or some other transport category aircraft had crashed, the loss of life would have most likely been much higher. Uh, but, but again, as far as the rate goes, uh, I, I don't think we'd have put up with... Uh, this kind of thing in a civilian transport, but uh, but again, I I don't know. Have, have there been a lot of losses uh, of of other uh, fighters? Uh, you know, F thirty fives, twenty twos, that sort of thing. How about one hundred and twenty five F one hundred fours? Well, okay, that's kind but of an that outlier, was right? yeah, that was 
you know, 60 years ago, too, or but, but, 50 years No, Rob, ago. But, you're, but what you don't understand, Rob, is an F-104 60 years ago would be equivalent to the technology advancement of an F-22 and 20,000s. It's a first-generation aircraft. Hmm. Um, okay, so shouldn't we be better at this now, 60 years later, than we were then? Well, this, the V-22 is also, as David was, was pointing out, it's a first-generation aircraft. It's a completely different type of aircraft that has ever flown before. And so you do expect to have more difficulty based on the very difficult design process of it. And, and I'm curious, Vance, you know, you're, you're, you're a safety expert overall, and I'm sure, I don't know if you work with military, but do you have any suggestions or ideas or, or thoughts on this? Yeah, it's a really great question. Uh, the military safety assessment is not based on passenger safety. It's based on mission success probability. And so that doesn't fly, no pun intended, here we are, in the civil space. In the civil space, it's purely based on passenger safety, not safety on the ground, not cost, risk, etc. And so military has a harsher environment. So traditionally, the uh, fatality, the crash rate was acceptably vastly higher, over 20 to 40 times higher in the military than civil. But the comments made just a few minutes ago that would we tolerate this in the civil sector? And absolutely not. We have numbers that, in theory, the systems should, the systems on board the aircraft and fuselage failure, structure failure, et cetera, should never cause a fatal crash. Okay. That's a one times 10 to the minus nine number for part 25 and part 29 aircraft, which means large aircraft, Embraer, Leonardo, Lockheed, et cetera. And so it's, it's quite different. But, but interestingly, and we can talk about that. A great topic for a future podcast would be what's changing in the U.S. military, worldwide militaries, because we work with all of them. Our company does. And they're adopting recently, just in fact this year, 2023, here we are, the civil safety standards of SAE, ARP, which is Aerospace Recommended Practices, 4761, 4754, starting with the FLRAA, which is the future long-range attack aircraft, which, folks, it looks a lot like a V-22, and it's going to be completely differently designed using completely civil standards unlike the V-22. So it won't be a first generation, and David brings a good point. This will be second or some say third generation of uh, tilt-rotor aircraft. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, let's push ahead and um, talk about commercial aviation. Airwaysmag.com says, Judge seeks further concessions as JetBlue Spirit trial concludes. So uh, we know about JetBlue's uh, proposed $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit and that the uh, U.S. Justice Department and some others um, sued to block that. And uh, the district judge has concluded that the uh, several things. One is that fares would likely increase if this acquisition went through. But he also ruled that if JetBlue wants to go through with this, that they're likely going to have to divest additional assets. Now, JetBlue's already said that they would divest some gates and slots at Boston, at uh, New York, Newark, and Fort Lauderdale International. Um, but the trial has ended. Closing arguments have been made. The judge has made this statement about, well, we might want some more from you. Uh, but the case is not concluded yet. We won't hear the sort of the final uh, decision and resolution until, I think, early next year. 
Um, so uh, it's it's interesting. It's not unusual in a case like this for the judge to stipulate the party who wants to you know acquire another. Um, you must do in order to satisfy requirements that it doesn't damage competition. And apparently this judge um, would like to see a little bit more give from from JetBlue. So we'll just have to wait and see. A couple of other interesting things, I guess, that came out of the um, court or the uh, proceedings is uh, the question of how long would it take consumers to see the benefits that JetBlue promises through this acquisition? Um, and the answer comes back, well, maybe two or three years. Uh, and this is a quote, after the market has arrived at its post-merger competitive equilibrium. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of a little vague, I think. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's consultant vague. Who was a guest on we had a few weeks ago that uh, talked about how the uh, consolidation of the airline business and deregulation has really hurt it? I, I would really be curious to hear his opinion on this and what, what his thoughts are. Sidorama? Yes, yeah, Sidorama. because we have these two airlines and we also have – yeah the uh, Hawaiian and uh, Alaska uh, proposal. So the industry seems to keep wanting to consolidate further. All right. A um, green aviation story. This is from uh, sky.com. UK's first air capture plant is turned on to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and turn it into jet fuel. And this is something that Mission Zero Technologies is is putting together. It's a it's a new company. They were only founded in 2020, and they're developing uh, what you call a direct air capture or DAC technology, and it recovers CO2 out of the air. And once you've done that, you can either use the CO to, uh, use the carbon for something or store it somewhere. Um, there are others that are working to develop technologies that do that, although they're, they're different. We see some action in California and in Iceland. There are some facilities that remove carbon. So that part of it is, okay, interesting. Uh, but this is the first time I've seen something that suggests you could take that kind of carbon and turn it into aviation fuel, SAF. Uh, I don't think we've seen that before. We... Um Back in almost a year ago, last January, in episode 731, we had uh, Christopher Chaput on, who was the president of DG Fuels, that uh, was doing the same thing, but he was getting the carbon from uh, from leftover wood recycled, uh, pieces of stranded wood and stranded electricity. So I think it's the first time we're seeing the carbon captured out of the air. But what's interesting is that it says right on in the article that they're getting the electricity to capture that. CO2 out of the air through solar power. And is solar power really green? Well, the generation of the generation of the electricity from the solar power is green once the materials to create the solar cells are harvested and harvesting those materials is not at all green. So a lot of questions about that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic on this kind of pie in the sky or free lunches. Well, there's, yeah, there's the issue of the amount of energy it takes. In the case of uh, Iceland, they're getting their their power to do this from a, a geothermal plant. 
in Cal- the California example, I don't recall where they where they get the energy from. But that's one issue because it usually takes a lot of energy to to do this. And then another is is it scalable? Removing teeny tiny fractions of you know, of the carbon out of the atmosphere, I mean, you know, may not do much. Is this something that's scalable to a large facility that can really take significant amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. And then the issue of what do you do with it? Uh, I think it's the the California plant where they're they're going to basically incorporate that into concrete and use it to, you know lock it up in concrete and use that as a building material. So I guess there's lots of ideas as to how you might do this. Uh, if you can create aviation fuel as a sort of a byproduct of of removing carbon from the atmosphere. Oh, that that sounds like a pretty interesting application. I don't know if anybody actually said they thought it was going to be a a, a freebie, but uh, uh, I mean, if the world is actually serious about carbon neutrality by 2050, they're going to have to get going, and they're going to have to try some of these methods, I believe, to see what what works, and you're right, some of it may not be scalable, but sometimes when you invent one thing, uh, you, you find out that a, a, a small change or even a, a, a medium-sized change to the product may re, you know, reap some other kind of benefits. Uh, but, of course, in this one, they mentioned 50 tons of CO2 uh, per year. I, I'm sorry, I'm not a... I'm not a scientist. I have no idea how to put that into any kind of context about uh, its usefulness. Uh, 50 tons sounds like a lot, I guess, but uh, again, I, I can't, I have nothing. Yeah, you know, frame of It's not relative to anything for me, so I, I can't really speak to whether that's a, a good number or, a, or a, a piss poor number. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, can I say that? No. Mm-mm. Oh, okay. Vance, don't say piss poor, okay? Okay, so I'm just going to try something. How many tons of carbon does an auto produce? How many trees, the other thing is how how much uh, carbon is removed by a single tree? I wonder how many trees they would have to plant in order to get, remove 50 tons of carbon in a year. I don't think it would be that many. Okay, so. But of course we're. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, but look at where we're, we're still chopping the rainforest to bits, right, every year. So, I mean, God knows how much CO2 removal devices uh, we're, we're killing uh, out of the atmosphere or, I mean, uh, out of nature each year. Uh, our, our, you know, we'll, maybe this will be silly to even think about compared to those, but I don't know. Well, what I see here is that the... U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, says that a typical passenger vehicle emits about 4.6 metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. So this is 50 tons would be the equivalent of 10 vehicles. So it's it's not a lot. Gentlemen, that's a very interesting question. It's not my area of expertise, but as an engineer, I was curious. And so let's say one of our listeners gets in their average American car, not electric, and drives an average road trip of three hours, five hours, seven hours to another adjacent major city. Who uses more 
hydrocarbon or who emits a better or larger carbon footprint? Someone in that car by themselves in that average American car or an economy class ticket on an average aircraft? Well, what you hear is obviously it's the aircraft. They're horribly polluting, right? <laughs> Folks, you are so far off. You could have two people in that car and still not beat the aircraft. Okay? That's right. We're not talking about business jets. Right? Yeah, come on. So it's really simple math, folks. Get out the calculator, look up Wikipedia, and spend two minutes and be surprised. Yes, yeah. People don't realize. And aviation, and we've talked about this, aviation, I think, is tending to get a bad rap when it comes to, to emissions. Now, it doesn't mean that I think aviation should be off the hook. Not by any means, but in terms of, uh, you know, the percentage of contribution, the greenhouse gases, um, aviation is kind of at the, I don't know if they're at the bottom of the list, but they're pretty, it's pretty low on the list of, uh, of contributors. Um, but it almost doesn't matter because of, because of public opinion and that can, that can affect that. And in fact, we see an example of that in our next story, which comes from the Press Herald up in Maine. And the Portland International Jetport wants to build an additional parking lot. But at the same time, the new mayor has prioritized flight, uh, fighting climate change and expanding the tree canopy in Portland. And so now there's this controversy. Uh, Micah, you can tell us a little bit about what's going on here, I think. Well, yeah, you know... Um Back in June, uh, I think that's the last time we had uh, Paul Bradbury, the director of the Portland Jetport, on the show, and he was talking about one of the big issues for the Jetport is parking. Um, we've had more and more people traveling for longer and longer times because people can work from home now, and so all the parking areas are filled up. And they have the space, they own the land, where they want to put up another uh, parking lot uh, right on airport grounds. Uh, now, about three weeks ago, when this was uh, discussed in the Portland Press Herald, a group of people who live right next to the airport and have been there for a number of years, but have, uh, you know, had the airport was certainly there before they were. They said, no, 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 you can't build this parking lot because it will destroy the buffer in our homes. We'll get more light. We'll get more noise. We'll, it'll be absolutely horrible for us. You can't do that. We live here and we, we, we don't want to move and, uh, and, and it's not, it's not our fault. The airport shouldn't be doing this. That's what, what the article was three weeks ago. Today's paper, as we record this, all of a sudden, the same group of individuals are saying, oh, you can't remove the trees. It's going to destroy the carbon footprint. And they've came up with a completely different argument to get the same results. There certainly is a desire for trees. This is a little wooded area that's mostly scrub when it comes right down to it. And yes, there are trees, but it's a group of um, what I would call NIMBY individuals, not in my backyard, that really don't want to live by the airport, even though they chose to buy houses there. In addition to that, um, I understand that because the parking lots are so full, people are using parking lots that are farther away and then shuttle buses are are bringing them um, to the airport. The jet board is saying, well, okay, but on-site parking has a smaller carbon footprint than people going to these remote parking areas, I guess, and then being shuttled in. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be an interesting, I think, uh, right, would you call it a battle? I mean, it sounds like it's shaping up as a battle, Micah. It, it definitely will be. Um, 
fortunately, the, the new elected mayor is a very level-headed guy, uh, former uh, state rep, uh, former uh, sheriff, uh, an attorney uh, by trade, and, uh, and, and, and we'll see how it all goes. There is a mall nearby where they want to shuttle people in, and they're talking about in the article how they need more public transportation. But what the airport has also said, and what is critical to understand, is that the airport is there for a vast majority of the state of Maine, and there isn't any public transportation outside of Portland, and even within Portland, there's very little. You need to have a car if you're coming to fly out of the Portland Jetport, if you're going to want to go home at 11 o'clock at night, and um, you need to be able to park that car. Mm. Yeah, I think it's another example of the kind of, the, the kinds of things that an airport can uh, uh, be confronted with, and it can be difficult to maintain the relationship with the public uh, so that they understand the issues and the trade-offs and the benefits of, of the airport and, you know, all of those things. It sounds like uh, you know, if you're running an airport, it, it can easily be an ongoing full-time job to maintain community relations. Yeah, we ought to invite uh, Paul back on sometime soon to talk about this project. And, and there was just a huge tarmac expansion at the, uh, the other, uh, one of the FBOs there that was also an issue because there's a, uh, oil pipeline that runs under the airport that they, they needed to work around. And, uh, he's always a good guest and can give us a lot of information, not just about the Portland Jetport, but about airport management in general. Again, our guest is Vance Hilderman. Uh, Vance, welcome to the show. When we think about China, many years ago, well, I've been to Beijing, I don't know, easily half a dozen times for business trips, meetings with Amico and Air China, AVIC, and maybe even CAAC once. But I had to go look up how long ago it was that I was in China working with the, you know, the airlines there. And my gosh. It was 25 years ago. I could I could hardly imagine. And so I think probably a lot of things have changed in the past 25 years in, in China with aviation. But we have kind of consistently seen forecasts like the Boeing commercial market outlook, uh, which uh, takes a 20-year uh, outlook into the future. And they've kind of consistently for the past number of years – looked at China and saw that as a um, as a big, big growth market. I guess, Vance, it kind of remains in the forecast to, uh, to grow spectacularly. It certainly does. China is a absolutely burgeoning economy. What they've done in the last 30 years is unprecedented in the history of the world in terms of numbers, in terms of people. And if we look at emerging countries like India... Uh, countries in South America, Africa, there's a lot of growth there, as opposed to the more wealthy first world countries in, you know, Western Europe and the USA that are fairly mature for markets. So where are we going to see new aircraft sold? Well, that is China, China, and China. In fact, the COMAC, the 919, if they never get certified, and they will for uh, external uh, Chinese purposes, but if they never got certified, and they were even modestly subsidized by the Chinese government, which what is a price in China? Think about that, folks. You could have the best-selling aircraft in unit volume, if they can produce enough, in the history of commercial aviation just by selling COMAC 919s domestically in China. That is unprecedented. 
The Boeing uh, outlook says that China will become the biggest domestic aviation market in the world in the next two decades, and that uh, on the global airplane demand by 2042, that China will account for 20% of that. So it's, uh, it's, it's big growth. They say China will order more than 8,500 new jets by 2042, uh, and most of those being single aisle. And um, I, I think, you know, for a domestic network, uh, single aisle makes a lot of, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, perhaps wide bodies for international flights. But it does seem like it's the growth is mostly going to come from the, the Chinese domestic, domestic flying. But, I mean, haven't they developed a, a whole kind of middle class that can now afford air travel? Absolutely. If you look at the numbers in China, you, you've got a middle class of, over 500 to 600 million people, okay? And that's growing, not because of the you know, increased uh, population growth, but simply the emergence, the transitioning of lower, lower middle class into the middle class that flies. You've got a lot of business interests that fly. China's a large country. When I talk to some of my friends in Europe, they're going to make a long, long drive from London to Manchester. Wow. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, folks, uh, we, we have a highway in America called I-90 that's about 2,500 miles from Seattle, where I'm broadcasting from tonight, and Boston. Folks, <laughs> China is larger than that. It's a very large country. People want to go places. You've also got a lot of familial travel. You know, there's obligations in, in China to do visit your family a couple times a year. And right there, you've got another burgeoning market as well. And then the railroad industry. Europe. Let's be honest, Dev. I love taking the railroads in Europe. It's so pleasant. You can walk up and get a glass of wine or beer. I'm just kidding. I don't drink a Coca-Cola and milk, you know, and have a nice comfy seat. But those trains go everywhere, not in China, not in Western USA. And so China really needs that domestic aircraft growth, and it is happening right now. They're, they're buying every aircraft. And speaking of narrow bodies, I think, something that's not recognized, they're going to be buying a lot more wide bodies, okay? They're going to have scheduling difficulties. They're going to have a lot more people traveling, and a wide body holding three or 400 people just holds a couple, two to three times more people than a, than a narrow. Now, there are a number of Chinese airlines. You've got China Eastern, China Northern. There's, there's a whole collection of, of these airlines. But at least when I was uh, dealing with that in the past, uh, it was all fairly tightly controlled by the government, right? It's almost uh, an allocation of of routes and airplanes and so forth. Is that still the case? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, in the news, China is a communist country because people who read their news in 256 characters uh, <laughs> like to sort things in a binary fashion. Folks, Digital, zeros and ones is binary. The world you live in is three-dimensional analog, including the time domain. And so don't buy that nonsense about China being a communist, pure country. I promise you, on 100 trips to China, in most categories, they are more capitalistic than America. And so let's think that our domestic and international travel is very capitalistic. Are you kidding me? Those slots, those routes, the control that's done by our governments, oh, my gracious. What do you call that? Is that China or is that the pot calling the kettle black? You know, um, 
China is is not necessarily a, a U.S. ally, un, unfortunately. And uh, however, you know, Boeing and Airbus and, uh, and and many other companies want to want to sell as many aircraft to them as possible because they they need to sell the aircraft. What's the concern with the the technology? And, and China's also great at copying technology. I mean, how how is that handled with these kinds of sales that are going to increase so dramatically over the next few years? Well, it's a really good point. Uh, if we look at the Comac 919, it is mostly, the technology is mostly uh, American and, and European, okay? Do we think the next aircraft is going to be mostly American? Do we remember David Halberstram's book, The Reckoning, okay, about Nissan Datsun, how they came in the General Motors Ford just opened up their factories to, to show them? Well, folks, this technology, if we... Go way back 300 years. Where did a lot of American technology come from? We licensed it from the Europeans, right? Uh, no, we stole it. Um, <laughs> we've got five Americans sitting here talking to you right now going, uh-oh, can we say that? Well, it, it's the fact. Uh, with military, we have a lot of controls. Americans can absolutely not work on Chinese military. Yet we see British fighter pilots training in China Chinese fighter pilots, oh my gracious, retired, okay? That would be a prison sentence in America. But what does it mean if other countries that have been trained by Americans support that? Ooh, it's a really slippery slope, okay? I do not work, I cannot work on Chinese military projects. But what is happening to military versus commercial? Well, we just talked about it 25 minutes ago, a merging between military and commercial. So if we call something commercial, can it be used navigation? IMU. Ooh, how about that? Uh, engine technology. Does that aircraft really know if it's on a high-speed business jet versus a fighter jet? Oh, there's some, there's some differences, but not as much as you think. The technology itself, the underlying core technology is highly reusable, interchangeable between military, not the stealth technology, okay, but the avionics, the software. Folks, I'm a software guy. I've uh, Every air, commercial aircraft you've been on in 30 years has my software on it. I can write software for a cappuccino machine, a car, a refrigerator, a car, or an aircraft using the exact same tools, the exact same work, and sometimes we do, okay? it's That technology is highly transportable. Well, the, the Chinese market is, uh, is so large that it, it's just very enticing for American and, and Western companies. You, you have to do business with China. I mean, the... To to walk away or to uh, neglect the Chinese market, it doesn't make a lot of business sense. But at the same time, the sometimes the requirements to do business in China uh, require that you partner up with a with a Chinese company, create a joint venture, and so forth. Um, I remember I, I mentioned Amico, which is a um, which is a maintenance organization. And that's a joint venture between the, the Chinese and Lufthansa, Lufthansa Technique. Uh, you know, Lufthansa wanted to develop business in, in China. The only way to do it was to form a joint venture. And when you do that, well, you, you dilute your, um, you know, your revenue, obviously. But more importantly, I mean, you introduce the technology to uh, your partner, uh, who will probably eventually become your competitor? I don't. I don't know of any way you know to avoid that. Yeah, it's a real slippery slope. Aviation. If you have a successful project, you sell one hundred or two hundred units. 
Okay. If you're automotive and you're not selling 100 or 200,000 units, we call you bye-bye. Okay. So aviation, we need as an economy of scale, that Chinese market. Look at Tesla. Okay. They sell cars, but they very, very carefully walk that dotted line and navigate that politically so they can have that Chinese market for, because of the economies of scale. So aviation needs it as well. You know, my first book, I was uh, in South Korea once and after I gave a presentation to a couple hundred people, they said, Mr. Hilderman, we'd like to give you a present. And they gave me a book. It was my book translated into Korean. <laughs> and they said, we, we give this free to all Korean aviation engineers. We had 1,000 books printed and we're going to make another 5,000. Folks, there's only one thing you could say, and it's not, I'm going to call my lawyer. It's thank you. That's yeah. very kind. And so when China contacted me a year ago and said, Vance, we'd like to license your latest book here in China. Would you like to get a royalty of 10%? I said, I'd have a one-time buyout. So they sent me a check for $10,000 and I took it and, you know, probably did something wise. with a, my wife on a nice vacation, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, probably wise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can you do, right? So, it's, but it's a slippery slope that all the that Honeywell and Collins, what Honeywell and Collins have done, is package their technology in such a way that they don't give away the IP, the intellectual property, the source code, as we call it, the low-level electronic uh, VHDL Verilog uh, FPGA designs, and so that part is encapsulated and kept private. Okay. With time and sufficient resources, we can reverse engineer, we engineers almost anything. And you don't think China has sufficient resources to do that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, really. And of course, they'd love to uh, develop their engine technology and the capabilities there because they, yeah, it's, they're a ways away from, at least they used to be, I assume they're still a ways away from the technology that, especially the hot section, yeah, you know, yeah. the turbine section. Yeah, one of my uh, customers is MTU in Germany that mm. uh, is very smart. They, they, they make uh, the hot sections for uh, many different uh, engine companies. Fifteen years ago, they were worried about the fake uh, engine parts coming out of China. Today, they cannot tell the difference. They worry about that for a different reason. It's mm. where did they get that technology? So what do you think, folks? Where did that technology come from? Interesting. I think you all know. What about uh, Boeing and Airbus uh, employing different strategies? Uh, the Europeans are, are not, I guess, in a such a state of contention with China that that the United States is. Uh, that implications for strategies for those two air framers? Yeah, I think uh, Airbus played their hand brilliantly, and Boeing just got caught up in the Trump-Biden politics, you know. And I think Airbus was laughing their tail off all the way to the bank. And so Airbus played that very, very wisely. So it's a challenge at Boeing. And Boeing is very smart. You know, uh, we can look at 737 MAX and have your opinions about Boeing. But folks, it takes thousands of people to create a successful aircraft. It just takes two or three people having an off day, not being as diligent as they need to be. And we can look at uh, Airbus, A330, Flight 447, Brazil to Paris and think, what were you thinking about those pitot tube and that stick shaker? You know, we can think about A400Ms, Ville, Spain, and say, what were you thinking about that engine torque data? You know, so it's not just Boeing. It's every aviation company is there. We're, we're blessed that they are so technically capable, but uh, Boeing is in a tough situation. It's an American company and that contention 
is not with China and Europe. It's China and America. Uh, maybe the, the recent meeting uh, between the, the presidents, China and the U.S., um, seems to have maybe made some, some positive uh, steps in terms of the aviation. I, I see that China's talking about uh, uh, liking to have uh, more flights between the two countries. Uh, I don't know if there was other progress that was made or if it's just the start or if it's, you know, just politicians looking good in the press. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I when I go to China, and I've never met a single Chinese person that I did not like. I, I, I don't know the government. I'm, I'm just an engineer, but I like to have a little fun. Uh, when I'm teaching a class, I'll say, okay, class, now let's Google. Get it? Let's Google in China. <laughs> yeah. And then I say, class, I don't know what time lunch is today. Let's vote. Hmm. Vote. Oh, ho, 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 ho. this is how you instill change, okay? Well, Mr. Lee, Chairman Lee, is, uh, she is, is not stupid, okay? When you have the advantage of a long time in office, you can have a much more strategic uh, long-term outlook than perhaps a, a four-year switch that we have here in America. And our let, let's be honest, our po- political shifting, shifting of the winds here in America is probably greater than any other first world uh, country or continent of the European Union inclusive. Yeah, yeah. We've also seen some, uh, and Rob is uh, probably aware of these uh, uh, more than I am, but we've seen some uh, general aviation companies and things that have been maybe in not the best uh, financial shape uh, being uh, bought up or going under Chinese Chinese ownership. I don't know if that's a, a trend, Rob, that's continuing or... Well, I, I, I haven't seen any lately, but of course... Uh... Mooney and and Cirrus especially. Cirrus is the best-selling general aviation aircraft in the U.S., uh, uh, best-selling single-engine aircraft in the U.S. And uh, if it hadn't been for the Chinese investment, uh, oh, what, maybe now five years ago, uh, Cirrus would have probably ceased to exist. And they certainly would never have built their successful... uh, uh, single-engine vision vision jet, uh, which uh, our buddy Max Trescott flies. And uh, so, again, it's, um, you know, again, you didn't see any uh, U.S. companies lining up. It's not as, it's not like there was a competition and the, uh, the Chinese won out. I mean, there was nobody here in North America that was even willing to spend a dime trying to save these companies. Um, now, what exactly the Chinese have learned from their investments? Uh, Icon Aircraft, that's another one, the seaplane uh, they own. And uh, what they've learned from these uh, uh, GA investments, I can't honestly say, but uh, they certainly have kept these aircraft uh, flying and uh, now whether we'll see them flying around in China, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that was going to be my question is, are, are we seeing sales into... Uh, I haven't heard of, uh, you know, too many uh, uh, Cirruses uh, flying in, in that area. But again, I, I don't follow it as much. Maybe Vance knows more about that than I do. Yeah, Vance, do we know um, much about what the general aviation market is like in China? Very small, very small. The airspace in China is very restrictive. Uh, and one of the challenges of flying, and God bless the Chinese for their patience, okay? They're not really patient people. I, it's funny, folks. If you haven't been to China, I think one of the reasons we have such conflicts, if you 
Oh, we're not going to talk about the Middle East. Oh, why not, folks? Israel. Who is Israel's largest trading partner? Turkey. Who is Turkey's? Israel. Folks, there's a cultural difference, but they're, they're there's far more similarities. And when there's more similarities, there's more contention. Brothers, cousins will fight more than strangers on the street, okay? And we, we lump Asian peoples into a Asian bucket. There is a vast difference between China uh, China and Japan. And I speak Japanese. I live there. And they are not Chinese, folks. So with, with China... They have such patience when you're flying domestically because there's delays all the time. The defense forces are shutting down airspace, controlling. They're checking everything. It's it's incredibly tight. It's gradually loosening up. But I have a few colleagues who come to the U.S. to get their pilot license. You know, $5,000, $3,000 if you don't want to learn landing. Well, don't try that. We, we, we're wise to you now. But, yeah, oh, that's bad, right? Um, we'll have to edit that out, surely. No, well, that's folks, staying in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, serious. Uh, they come to America because you can get your pilot license in two months at $5,000, okay? That's not happening in China. The time is, is very much longer. In Europe, it's about uh, two and a half times the price, twice twice the length. So a lot of European colleagues even come over here to be CFIs, commercial uh, pilots, and they do that in America. So it's changing, though. And China has that huge growing middle class. If you Go around China, you will see no shortage of cars in the modest price range of 150 to 300 thousand dollars. Okay, they're known as yeah, we can name them all, but you you don't. Yeah, that's a different topic, folks. That's the price of a commercial, a small uh, general aviation aircraft, right? That we procure commercially, and so there's a vast market, and it's going to be, I think, the single largest growing market once the Chinese finally realize that they can loosen up that domestic market, that the uh, foreign threat is not going to happen through general aviation. Just my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, but the uh, the airspace in China is no is no small. Uh, uh, hurdle. I mean, it, I I think it's it's not just the airspace, at least from what I know. Uh, but but there there are not very many uh, uh, general aviation type airports in China. Uh, I mean, when they talk about aviation, they're talking about the airlines. And uh, I mean, while we do have uh, business jets flying over there, uh, they're operating mainly out of the the large cities. So, uh, but again, I had heard. Oh, who was the fellow we had? Um, oh gosh, uh, aviation in China. He wrote a book. Uh, gosh, oh well. Anyway, it'll. Uh, uh, he writes for the Atlantic. Uh, Jim, uh, Jim, James Fallows. Mm, yes. uh, we had James Fallows on some years ago uh, with his book. It's probably got to be five years now. Uh, he was uh, talking then about the fact that. They were just then beginning to look at general aviation, but not necessarily in a positive way, because, again, the airspace has been owned by the military uh, forever. And uh, I, I don't think they quite understood the value of a small aircraft. And uh, I, I don't know how much that's improved. Uh, I don't think Jim has been back there uh, since, but uh, uh, you know, again, that that's an interesting idea to, to to delve into. I think. 
It's a really excellent point. Uh, completely, Rob, Rob's totally right. Something related, though, folks, tangential, is eVTOL, electric vehicle takeoff and landing. You look at eHang, you look at the vast number of electric startups on automotive and eVTOL, they're Chinese, okay? China has less restrictions in that regard for safety, okay? Let's be honest. Um, China doesn't place as much emphasis on individual safety as uh, Europe or even America. And so the eVTOL market is really cool. And that's the one that doesn't need that mandatory MRO, the airport infrastructure, right? And so that's why that's being looked at. And that's where China, I think, is going to have the biggest impact. So I think the route to uh, general aviation uh, fixed wing is not the way the America did it or Europe did it, you know, with our crop dusters, our uh, performers, our mandatory travel between Kansas and, you know, Duluth, but rather through urban air mobility. And that's going to be the entree into opening up the fixed wing, what we call general aviation, which in China, it's never going to be like that. It's going to be EV tall. Hmm. Yeah. Dave and I have talked about um, this topic some uh, that there are so many companies in that space, in the EV tall space, yeah. uh, with ideas that range from seems feasible to kind of seems a little on the crazy side, the whole spectrum. Some of the basic technologies are developed and are are pretty straightforward, uh, but there's still a lot to lot to do there. But we talk about consolidation of those companies, right? We we, we can't. There won't be as many eVTOL companies long term as we as we see now. And how China plays a role in creating the you know the manufacturing the you know the the OEMs. Um, infrastructure that that supports that that segment of aviation i think is uh, is is very interesting because they can compete in a lot of ways that it's difficult for for westerners to and you you mentioned one vance was that you know they can they can develop these things uh, i think much quicker uh, because they have different criteria for what are the hurdles that you have to go through on that on that path um, that gives them a a leg up I think, uh, and uh, maybe suggests a, a pretty strong role for them in the future. But countries like to protect their aviation con- uh, companies. Countries like to protect their aviation companies. You know, it's it's often seen as a as a national asset. So I don't know if all that leads to some some friction. Um, it it may show up with aircraft exports from from China, like the the Comac planes and so forth. Uh, you know, you mentioned Vance that uh, the market in China is is certainly large enough to support the domestic industry without them needing to export. But at some point, I would think they're going to want to export to uh, to the rest of the world. They do, and you know, we Americans are so used to seeing Ford, GM, Chrysler, and now Tesla on the road. But when you go to South America, to Africa, to Eastern Europe. Folks, what do you see on the road? You see a lot of Chinese vehicles. You go, what is that? It kind of looks like, well, yeah, it does. It was copied from, right? It looks like many of the Western cars. They are Chinese cars. Well, what do you think is happening to eVTOL aircraft? It's the same thing, folks. So, yeah, watch out. China 
China is going to be that third competitor to Boeing Airbus here real soon, and it's going to. It wants to be a big exporter to the world. They they need to for for economic stability, for political stability. What's China's Achilles heel, folks? That's a let's extrapolate, let's step back and go. What are they afraid of at the leadership level? Well, it's like any leader losing leadership. Okay, every four years we do that in America. Well, how would China lose its leadership? Ooh, have a disaffected general population. Okay, well, how do you have a disaffected general population? Well, they don't have jobs. They can't export. They're hungry. They're angry. What? Didn't sound at all like uh, Tiananmen, did it? Okay, we'll try to look that up in China Wiki. That doesn't look at all like COVID protests, right? Woohoo, mm-hmm. folks. So what, what happened? Appeasement. What's the best way to appease? China, grow your aircraft market, export, and make part of the Belt and Road EV tall and general aviation. Easy solution. Well, I think it's going to be quite a ride. Um, Vance, tell us a little bit about your company. Tell us what you do. Oh, we're a really cool company, but uh, one of those that just kind of works behind the scenes and you go, oh, I never thought people had to do that. This stuff just magically appears like Star Trek. How did they build the Enterprise? When I was a kid, and I'm old enough to have watched the real Star Trek, Captain yeah. Kirk, do-do-do-do, uh, my thought wasn't, uh, why does Kirk always get the cool space alien ladies, but rather, how did they build that Enterprise? Did they build it on the ground or did they build it in the air? Well, I wanted to be a naval aviator, but I'm not as talented or good-looking as Tom Cruise and a little bit older, so I washed out of flight school. I passed everything except the vision test. For some reason, they want you to have good vision and depth perception to land on an aircraft carrier. Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's a CFI, so he would know. But yeah. So a few I, I, I never landed on a carrier. <laughs> well, you probably could have. Well, a fusion is uh, the world's largest uh aviation certification services company and so all these aircraft of of any type have very rigorous standards whereby we have to show that the software the hardware that ecosystem of electronics is safe under any foreseeable operating condition and so a fusion has products templates packages to help oh hundreds of aviation companies every year navigate uh develop the engineering perform the actual safety system engineering developing software hardware turning the crank and making all those systems that when you look at an airplane wing all that magical harmony of movement navigation communication uh, all that stuff it's companies like a fusion and there's oh, about 20 competitors that we have and they're all very capable folks you're in good hands with all of them but just that we're larger than any other ones and that's all it's interesting it's it's hard to characterize um in a in a way um but uh, what is your client base like who are your typical clients oh uh <laughs> Probably eight of the 10 largest EV tall companies are all using our stuff. Um, little companies like Boeing, Airbus, Rockwell, Honeywell, uh, most Western militaries in the world. We travel a lot. I think 90% of the world's 500 largest aviation development companies, which is uh, avionics, uh, aircraft, missiles. Um, okay, let's, let's be honest. Uh, they use a fusion uh, engineering, our products, our, our training. We analyze their gaps. We help them certify. We coordinate with the certification authorities like EASA in Europe, FAA, U.S. military, uh, Huntsville Airworthiness, for example, Bundeswehr, Germany, New Zealand, Air Force, Australian, Korean, uh, mm. oh, pretty much pretty much everybody. They all use this. 
So is the largest component of your of your workforce uh, engineers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We're we're all engineers. And and yeah, everyone. What do you look for in hiring a new engineer into the company? Oh, flexibility. We, we we tell people most companies spend a lot of money telling recruits why you should work for Acme Incorporated. We don't spend any money on that at all or any effort. We tell here are the 10 reasons you don't want to work for us because you only want to work 20 hours a week. You don't like to travel. You want to know exactly what you're going to be doing next month, next year, and you are boring in your work. You don't like learning new technologies. We say that if we keep you 80% happy 80% of the time, then we're 100% successful. It's, it's new math. We're very innovative. We're leading edge. We, uh, we scramble a lot. We have no guarantees of what you're going to be working on in six months. We're, we're inventing tomorrow's technology today, so we're not using yesterday's technology. Unfortunately, that means uh, you got to have some experience, folks. We don't hire inexperienced people, okay? Mm-hmm. So pretty much the average is a minimum 10 to 15 years to get hired on, and on board it's about 20 to 25 years. Wow. Oh, very good. So looking around our group here, we've all got some gray hair in this group, guys. Uh, <laughs> we do. How, how, how are your resumes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't speak engineer. No, Rob doesn't, but uh, uh, it's good. Okay, um, Vance, any um, any uh, sort of uh, projections or, you know, polish up that crystal ball and, and uh, what do you see when you look into the future? What are the, the kinds of areas that you think are going to be exciting or, or different or challenging or, or whatever is kind of top of mind for you? Well, I think uh, a topic that's close to my heart is aerospace engineering. And so many people think, oh, it's boring. I want to go work at Google, Amazon. Is that really what you want to do? Folks, aviation, what, what is the single largest export in 14 of the 50 America states? And that includes Texas. Texas isn't really a state. Texas, we, America has 49 states in Texas. In Texas. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, okay. But what is the largest export in 14 of the 50 states? It's aerospace products. Okay. So, Aerospace is a really cool field. I'd encourage everyone to encourage your kids, your friends. Think about aerospace. It's going to be here forever. It's growing. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of innovation. And you help the U.S., okay? You help your country if you're not American. And you just have tremendous uh, uh, activities. But for some reason, we have this shortage of ladies, females, okay? Can we say that word these days in this non-gender binary world? Yeah, we can, folks. Uh I have three daughters, and I think aerospace would be good for them. None of them agree, okay? <laughs> Folks, en- encourage females, ladies that you might know, binary, non-gender guys. Encourage everybody to think about aviation. We have, there's a shortage everywhere. There's a shortage of pilots. There's a shortage of engineers. There's a shortage of air traffic controls. There's a shortage of baggage handling, if that's your deal, okay? But think of engineering and really go after aviation. That's what I'd like to impart our audience with, Max, and Rob and David and Micah. Yeah, a lot of opportunities there for sure. And that's something that we encourage uh, as well. Um, all right. Any, um, what's a good way to uh, contact you or find out more information, uh, company website or social media? What, uh, what would you like to? The company website is great. And it's with a Z, a fusion, A-F-U-Z-I-O-N. We infuse technology into A, aviation, a fusion, A-F-U-Z-I-O-N.com. That's the best way. Excellent. 
Vance, thanks so much for being on the show. Really a pleasure, guys. Truly. What's up with the geeks? Rob, we're getting a lot of people send in their uh, their favorite aviation movies. This is this was a great idea you had. Uh, of course it was. That's because I don't speak engineering. Um, <laughs> no, seriously. It it and I'm not going to mention what my favorite movies are. You better not. Because uh, I, I wish I could see. It, it's really unfair because I I made everybody pick one, but I don't have one. I probably have. 10. Yeah. Uh, but hey, you know what? It was my idea. I get to make up the rules. But uh, seriously, I think I've seen some really great uh, movies that I had not even thought of in the list of some that I saw, my God, maybe 50 years ago uh, that I went, oh, yeah, you know, that was a great flick. And of course, then too, I've seen some that aren't, uh, or I've heard some that are not on the list. Uh, so I can't wait for us to do this uh, uh, session in January after we pick yes. the winner, uh, just to talk about some of the uh, aviation flicks and what uh, what we liked about them. And uh, uh, some of the listeners that have uh, sent in entries have uh, already taken us uh, down that path of uh, information by telling us why they enjoyed some of the movies they picked. Yes. So, oh, I, I should mention, uh, it's still plenty of time. I mean, it's only uh, December 11th here as we're recording this now. Uh, so, Saturday, uh, <coughs> okay, I guess I'm not completely past my cold. So, send an email to uh, thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Tell us what flick you liked. However, one caveat, it cannot be, uh, what was that darn movie, uh, Micah, uh, we yeah, as long wanna... as it's not Top Gun, either of the Top Guns. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yes. As long as it's not Top Gun, uh, we will uh, will entertain your uh, your entry, and uh, the winner will be uh, someone that's drawn at random uh, in uh, in January, and they get a fifty dollar gift certificate to. Something like a Visa card, is it, or something? Something or like that. We, we'll figure that. Yeah, out. and and you can blow it on whatever you want, and uh, be thinking about the airplane geeks when you do it. That's right. And you know, when we when we first started this a couple episodes ago, I was kind of thinking that it would be kind of interesting that in January we'd announce the winner, and you know, that would take you know maybe a couple of minutes. But like you said, Rob, the list of. <laughs> Of movies is uh, is is quite spectacular. Some of them I never even heard of before, and now I'm intrigued. So this is going to generate a, you know, a a listening uh, uh, list. Uh, what do you call it? A um, a like a playlist, top for ten the, list, or a viewing oh, list, playlist. a viewing list, go. right? Yeah, yes, yeah. For for me, and so um, w- what we're going to do is instead of just simply announcing that we're going to make an episode out of this and we'll talk about the movies that you all had submitted and as Rob mentioned some really interesting reasons behind sometimes they're sentimental reasons sometimes they're technical reasons for thinking that was a particularly um, good film a number of people are having trouble picking just one and uh, but but try to do that if you give us more than one we're going to either take the one you th- you said you liked the best, or we're just going to take the first one from the list because otherwise we're you know we've got too many. 
And I've got to say, I'm, I'm really annoyed at you, Rob. I mean, more than usual, uh, because, you know, you've given me this assignment. The last time you gave me an assignment, I blew it, as, as, as you know, but, but I've really been thinking about this and I've been thinking about it hard and I'm really having a difficult, difficult time. I think I may know, but then I hear other things, but that's not the only reason why I'm annoyed at you because I'm looking at the list and I see all these great films and I realized I've seen every one of them. What have I done with my life? Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. Every one of them. I think maybe there might be one or two that I'm not, I, that I have not, but I've seen huh. every single one of them at least one time. And yet nobody has picked the top four so far that are in my mind, which is interesting. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That, that will be for, that will make for an interesting uh, discussion. I, I can't wait for that. And we'll, well, in the show notes for that episode, we'll publish the, the entire list. Maybe we'll just make a, a, a whole separate page or something on the website to list all these aviation movies. And then, and then maybe 12 months from now, we'll have another contest and it'll be who has watched, you know, the most number of all of these movies. And you know what? And, and for that show, first of all, I'm hoping that we can, you know, maybe Brian will be able to join us as, you know, everybody plus Brian. And I'm really hoping, and I hope you guys are listening, that we might be able to find a way to work it out to get Stephen Grant on the show too, because they have been so involved in this in so many ways with emails to us back and forth. We're all chatting about this all the time. Uh, I mean, all of us within the, the, the geeks and Steve. That's Grant. who those guys are. <laughs> Wonderful, you guys. If you, we can find a way to work out a time when, when we can all be together, and and because I think this will be a fun discussion. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Plus, we'd love to have him on the show. Oh, for sure. So all right. Anybody else got anything before we do listener mail? I got nothing. <laughs> Hearing none. All right. We have uh, a little bit of listener mail. We heard from Sarah. Actually, this was in her email that gave us her favorite movie. But she also added a uh, picture of a Cessna citation at Munich Airport, and as she put it, with a small weight distribution problem. Uh, that airport got hammered with a lot of snow. I don't really know how much, but there were a lot of flight cancellations and, and so forth. But there's this photo of a Cessna citation, and it's sitting on its tail. This is during the, the winter storm. You know, that's really a well-trained Cessna Citation because I have tried to teach them to sit so many times, and I've never been able to get one to do it. But this one is really well-trained. So actually, um, yeah, more than 700 scheduled flights were canceled on that on that one day. Business aircraft were grounded. And, oh, I see here it is. They had 17 inches of snow. And uh, temperature is uh, low as minus 20 degrees C, or which, which is... Yeah, four below zero Fahrenheit, and, and there's also a um, a video, a YouTube video of this uh, Cessna citation. But what I thought was interesting, and I think this, uh, oh yes, this came from a comment someone posted, uh, Global Eight Thousand One posted under the YouTube video concerning: Do they calculate snow load on tail sections of aircraft? Did you know about this, Rob? Um, cause they I, do, I know that the, they, they, uh, they have a, a, an easy way out of it. They say, don't leave your airplanes out in the snow. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of like the, um, what was it? The, uh, 
David might know the C-130s. I think I remember seeing pictures of C-130s or some other kind of cargo aircraft with a uh, with a big pole out the back to hold them uh, to keep them from uh, falling on their uh, their butts uh, while they're loading cargo. Uh, but David, do you remember that, or am I thinking of something else? Uh, C-121 Constellations have them. Um, a lot of the old school reciprocating engine, like C-54s, um, where they were on tricycle landing gear, but they still were tail heavy, had um, a stand that you'd put underneath it to support the tail up because of weight and balance issues. So this um, this commenter, this uh, Global 8001 uh, posted he said uh, or she said this situation can happen to any airplane i've seen 747s md11 and others fall victim of this type of condition on the global 7500 that i fly he writes or she writes we have an electronic load sheet to calculate the snow load on the horizontal stabilizer including engine pylons in the aft section of the airplane to prevent tipping or falling on the tail this e-load sheet lets you know the minimum nose load for towing and or avoiding embarrassing situations. I just never thought about this as being as being an issue. I have to admit, I never did either, really. Uh, again, we're so used to seeing uh, big airplanes uh, parked in, I'm sorry, business airplanes parked in hangars that this Citation 10, which is what that was, uh, sitting on its tail, is is really an oddball kind of uh, kind of shot, but but again, you're right. We we have seen uh, similar uh, airplanes, uh, cargo airplanes, passenger airplanes sitting on their tails uh, because they got the uh, the load wrong. Nine times out of ten, you remove the engines, so you're going to sit on the tail. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, that's why you know when you see airplanes in the boneyard with with the engines that have been sold or. Removed, yeah, they have uh, concrete blocks where the engines were, just so they don't uh, don't tip over. I guess what I really wonder about this, though, is so how did they deal with the citation? I mean, if you scrape the snow off, the thing's going to crash down on its nose gear, isn't it? Right? I wonder how they got it back down. Yeah, but if you scrape the snow off, if you scrape the snow, I mean, the the nose gear should be able to handle it coming down. Well, I guess that's true. I, See, David I, I always thinks hope, of the practical things. I would hope that the nose gear would be able to handle that, considering what it does for a living. Okay, I, I remove my question as being stupid. <laughs> All right. Hey, we also heard from uh, our, our buddy Ray from Sydney. He says, uh, "Good day, folks. It's been a long time, which is true. Hope you're doing well. Thought that this may interest you. Now, the he says the historical aircraft." Restoration Society, also known as HARS, has finally taken to the sky on Friday morning, 8th of December, in their replica Fokker FV-11B, named the Southern Cross, which was originally, or which the original was flown by Sir Charles Kingsford Smith from the 1920s and 1930s. He says the replica suffered an undercarriage failure in May 2002, followed by wing and engine damage as it landed um, at an airport in Adelaide. He says after a short flight along the south coast, uh, VHUSU returned to Shell Harbor Airport to a tarmac full of happy volunteers. 
Hope you enjoy the attached video. And so we'll put that video in the uh, in the show notes. This is a beautiful airplane. Yeah, it's a Fokker trimotor and uh, just an amazing aircraft. Uh, the Ford trimotor was based on on the Fokker and uh, and it's the fir- it's the aircraft that was made the first uh, trans Pacific flight from uh, from uh, to Australia from the U.S. And can you imagine doing that in 1928 without navigation the way that we have it today? Wow, yeah. When I saw the the video, the first thing I thought of was it looks like a Ford trimotor. Yeah, that's what uh, what Ford based the trimotor on. It was a slightly more modern version, Tin Goose. Ah, interesting. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Vance Hilderman, CEO of Effusion. And you can find them at effusion.com. And check out our show notes at airplanegeeks.com. We have a lot of links that you can uh, go explore some of the topics that we've talked about this this episode. You can find show notes there for every episode, or if you want to go straight to the show notes for this episode, that's airplanegeeks.com slash 778. Of course, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Again, we're looking for your favorite aviation movie, not Top Gun, and get those into us by December 31st, 2023. And yeah, feel free to embellish your email with the description as why you like that particular movie. You don't have to, not everybody does, but if you've got a story behind it, feel free to include that. All right. David Vanderhoof, where can we find you? When I'm not coughing up a storm, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. And of course, you can find me on social media lurking in the background if you can spell Vanderhoof. Okay. And Rob Mark, where do we find you? Uh, All the usual places, no longer on the bulletin board at the post office, thank God. And, of course, our younger listeners have no idea what we're talking about. But uh, usual places, jetwide.com, and uh, uh, it's been fun. Great. And... Our main man, Micah. Micah, where do we find you? Well, I'm still on uh, the remnants of Twitter. I haven't left yet. And uh, if you want to find me there, it's at MainFly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state of Maine. Fly, like let's go fly. And then you can also find me on the Journey is the Reward podcast with Pasadena Brian Coleman, our former associate producer. And we've got a lot of fun episodes coming up that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. Ooh, got a bit of a teaser there. All right, and I'm Max Flight. You can uh, find me at 30,000feet.com. So please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty-night. Miska, muska, mouseketeer, Airplane Geeks, and time is here. Thanks for listening. And keep the blue side up.